We'll continue in our little survey through this Old Testament book. Esther chapter 3. We'll read the entire chapter. As always, if you do not have a Bible, there is one in the seat there in front of you. Same version I'm reading from, and I would encourage you to follow along there. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, the lot, before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the thirteenth day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Father God, thank you for your word. I pray today as we look at this interesting chapter that you will speak to our hearts. Fill me with your spirit that I might preach rightly and accurately today. Lord, may I say nothing I ought not and everything I should. Help my mind to be clear, Father. It seems to be a bit muddled this morning, and I pray you'd help with that. And just use this. I pray, Father, that as we think about what happened and as we think about some lessons we might learn, that, Father, you'll teach us all, uh, even from this Interesting story. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. After these things, is the way this chapter begins. After these things, verse number one. And so since we always start where the text starts, 
I think it's important that we ask ourselves the question, just as Jesus asked the Emmaus Road disciples, what things, what things are being referred to there? And, of course, the things that are being referred to there are the events that took place in the previous two chapters. The events of chapter 3 took place four years after the coronation of Queen Esther. So four years have passed since what we read about in the last chapter. To a lesser extent, we don't know exactly when Mordecai was elevated there at the end of that chapter uh, and when he foiled the plot to assassinate the king, but uh, sometime during that four-year period. And that's what we learned in chapter 2. And then uh, eight years have now passed in total since Ahasuerus' stupid drunken party when he deposed his first queen, Vashti, and making the way for Esther to become queen, as we saw last week. And all of those things don't seem to be of much consequence, do they? Do they? At least on the on the face of them, they just seem to be random and maybe unconnected activities that took place in the Persian Empire, a land far away and in a long ago time, as as Star Wars would say. But uh, the further we progress in our study of the book the more we see how God was using every one of those things, even though they seem to be disconnected and seemingly not very important to people. He was using each part of that to rescue his people uh, from certain annihilation. We've met most of the players in the drama. We've met uh, Ahasuerus, the king. We've met Vashti, the queen, who's no longer the queen. We've met Mordecai, and we've met Esther, who now is the queen. There's only one major player left to meet. And we just read about him here in chapter 3, and that's Haman. Haman, the enemy of the Jews. He's referred to that way three times in this book. There we read about it in verse number 10. He's also referred that way in Esther chapter 8 and verse 1, and chapter 9 and verse 10. Everything we know about this guy comes from what we read about him here in Esther. He was the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. I have trouble saying Agagite for some reason. My tongue won't work that way. We can't be certain what that means. We can't be certain what, what it means when it says that he was an Agagite, but there are two primary interpretations. Some think that he was descended from King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites, and you can read about that back in First Samuel chapter 15. Others think that this means he was from a province in the Persian Empire. There was a province called Agag. Now, There's arguments on both sides of that. Those taking the view that he descended from Agag the king, that would have been about 600 years prior when Agag the king was was, uh, on his throne. They say that that would explain his hatred of the Jews because God had declared war on Amalek. And you can go back and read that. God had told the Jews to wipe Amalek off the face of the earth. It was just a, uh, a, a bad thing. You see, the text doesn't indicate here that Haman hated the Jews. There's nothing here that says he hated the Jews. He hated Mordecai. He hated one Jew and was going to take it out on everybody else as a result. I I think the right interpretation, and the one that makes most sense to me, is that he was from the province of Agag right there in Persia. But you guys are sensible people, and you can decide which one of those you think is right. It, It doesn't really matter, regardless of which is correct. The main point about this is that Haman was an evil man who hated Mordecai and sought to exterminate not only him, but all his. Warren Wiersbe, in his wonderful little book, Be Committed, pulls no punches in describing how evil Haman was. Let me just quote from him. He says, everything about Haman is hateful. You can't find one thing about this man worth praising. In fact, everything about Haman God hated. 
He quotes from Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. And as Haman's personality unfolds here and throughout the rest of the book, and as we see what's going on here, we're going to see that every one of those things that God hates is clearly displayed in this man, Haman. Well, the first two chapters of Esther have all been introductory. They've been leading up to the main plot. And now we get to chapter 3, and we're going to see the main plot revealed here uh, with the introduction of Haman and what he wants to do. So let's break down this chapter in two ways. Let's, first of all, let's just ask ourselves what happened. And then secondly, let's ask ourselves, are there any things that we can apply from that to our own lives and learn? So first of all, what happened? And the first thing that happened was Haman was promoted. Haman was promoted. We read about that in verses 2 through 4. He was promoted and given authority that was second only to the king himself. We don't know why. We don't know what he did to earn that. We just know that he was promoted. And when the king uh, promoted him to that position and elevated him into that high position, he also issued a command that everybody else had to respect Haman. That's when uh, Haman was around. They need to bow and pay homage to him. Verse number uh, two, excuse me. So everybody obeyed that command. Haman would walk through and people would bow. Everybody. Everybody that is except Mordecai. Mordecai who absolutely refused to bow to Haman. Now, I am forced to ponder why that would be. Don't you wonder why that would be? Why would Mordecai not be willing to bow to Haman? In verse number four, Mordecai applied or provided what was apparently his excuse for it, the reason that he gave, was that he was a Jew. Now, I find it interesting he had been unwilling to admit that any other time. He had specifically instructed Esther to keep that quiet and to hide that fact, but now he seems to surface that just maybe as an excuse for this particular action. But you see, I, I think that's a little dubious, because the king did not really give him any reason to use that as an excuse. If, if the king had said, you need to worship Haman, then we would understand that, right? Because a good Jew would certainly never do that. Earlier during the captivity, Nebuchadnezzar had erected a great huge image. You remember that? And he had bowed, he told everybody to bow down and worship the image. And what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They said, no, we're not going to do that. We can't do that because we can only worship God. But that's not what, that's not what was commanded Mordecai was not asked to worship Haman. Bowing here is not worship of deity. It's rather respect of official authority. That's all it was asked. There are two different terms used here in the text for kneeling or bowing down, and neither of those in the original language implies in any way worship. It's just simple respect. So why would he not do that? And why would the fact that he was a Jew keep him from doing that? There was nothing wrong with bowing to authority for a Jew. Warren Risby gives some examples. He says, It must be remembered that the Jews did not violate the second commandment when they bowed down before people in authority any more than Christians do today when they show respect to leaders. For instance, 
Abraham bowed down to the sons of Heth when he negotiated with them for Sarah's grave in Genesis 23. Joseph's brothers bowed down before Joseph, thinking he was an Egyptian official in Genesis 42. David bowed down to Saul, 1 Samuel 24. Jacob and his family bowed before Esau in Genesis 33. There could be other examples we could cite, no doubt. But there was nothing wrong with bowing before civil authority then, and there is nothing wrong with it today. Jews and Christians alike are taught to obey civil authorities unless and until they require us to disobey the higher law of God. You can read about that in Acts chapter 5. So I don't think this was religious at all. I think the Jew thing was an excuse. I think the Jew thing was just a convenient thing for him to toss out there. I think this was personal. I mean, I can't be sure about it because the text doesn't say, but it certainly seems to me to imply that this was Personal, As in every other case concerning Mordecai and Esther, there's simply no evidence whatsoever that God was part of their thinking. And so it appears to me that his objection was more rooted in personal pride and some personal disdain of Haman than any religious reason. But regardless, Haman was promoted. Mordecai refused to recognize him. And so the next thing that happened was Haman sought to destroy him and to destroy all of the Jews. And we read about that in verses 5 through 9. All of the Jews. It's difficult to understand that level of hatred, isn't it? It's difficult to understand that level of evil. Simply spurned by Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy him, but it wasn't enough to destroy only his antagonist. Once he learned that he was a Jew, he set out to destroy all the Jews. Everywhere. Boy, there's a great Star Trek illustration I could throw in right here, but I'm not going to do that. I think I've already used that one once anyway. But he wanted to destroy them all. Now think about this. Go sometime and look at how big the Persian Empire was. Look at how far it stretched. Mark talked this morning about maps and how important they are. Uh, Go and look at a map of the Persian Empire, and you'll see just how big this thing was. All the Jews everywhere. That would include the godly remnant who had returned to Jerusalem and Palestine and who were in the process of rebuilding the temple and reinstituting temple worship. God's people who actually recognized God, unlike the ones who were still behind to a certain extent. It would also include Queen Esther, who was living in the palace of the king. So Haman began to plot and he began to plan. The Persian people did very little without consulting the astrologers and and their deities. And so that's the first thing he did. He he cast lots. Actually, the phrase used here is he cast per. That's a Persian word for casting lots. It's going to become important when we get to the end because it's going to explain to us why the Jews instituted the Feast of Purim as a result of what took place in the book of Esther. He cast lots to determine when the Jews should be destroyed, and it resulted in a day a year in the future, the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and the thirteenth day of the month. That's in verse 13. Solomon, interestingly, wrote, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16. This was clearly from the Lord. A year out, about as far out as it was possible for it to be, And God gave the Jews there a year to prepare, and Esther and Mordecai a year to prevent it. So Haman has planned, he has plotted, 
He has determined exactly when uh, the lot tells him he should do this. He only needed the approval of the king to accomplish it. Can you imagine going to, to the king and saying, I want to destroy an entire people off the face of the earth and having the king go along with that? But he did. He went to the king. He accused the Jews of disobeying his laws in verse number 8, which was, of course, a lie. The Jews weren't the ones that were doing this. Only Mordecai was the one who had disobeyed the law when he refused to bow. But Haman inflated that and applied it to the entire people. And Haman asked the king to issue a decree in writing that the entire Jewish people be destroyed. Once it was in writing, it would be irrevocable, and it would have to happen. There was no higher law than the law that the king had decreed. He even promised to pay for the implementation of the thing. Look at verse number 9. 10,000 talents of silver. Now, I did a little math. This is an interesting thing. 10,000 talents of silver. That would equate to about 750,000 pounds of silver. I looked up the current price of silver per pound, and I found, uh, I found something online. It was dated, I think, in April of 2018. And at that time, it said the current value of a pound of silver was $195.38. So Haman was offering... From his personal fortune, supposedly, $146,535,000 of his personal money to wipe out. That would be a huge amount today. Imagine how much it was then. As a matter of fact, it was a ridiculous sum. He certainly could not pay it. Herodotus, the historian, said that the entire income of the entire Persian empire in a year was 15,000 talents of silver. So he was saying, I personally will pay two-thirds of what the entire empire brings in every year. It was, it was absurd. It was nonsense. It was ludicrous. But it demonstrates the depth of hatred in his heart, doesn't it, for Mordecai. We get to verse number 10, and we see that the king granted permission, astonishingly, and issued the decree. Now, one thing we've learned about Ahasuerus, we certainly learned this in chapter 1, he was a weak man. He was easily persuaded by his officials, as the matter regarding Vashti back in chapter 1 would indicate. The signet ring was his signature, and when an impression from that ring was made on a document, or added to a decree or writing, it carried the authority of the king, and there was no higher authority, and it was irrevocable. Notice that the king didn't recognize and didn't realize that he was sentencing his own queen to death, but he was. The command was to kill every Jew everywhere, including men, women, and children, and to plunder their possessions. Now, before we get too upset about this, we need to recognize, of course, that's not going to happen. This book has a good ending, and we're going to see that very soon. That's not going to happen. It won't ever happen. God's promises to the Jewish people are forever, just as his promises to you and me are forever. Many have tried to destroy the Jewish people down through history. I have heard it said many times that one of the greatest examples, uh, evidences of the truth of Scripture, is just that simple word Jew, because everything that's been promised has so amazingly held true. Many have tried. Adolf Hitler's name that comes to mind. And I'm sure there will be others who will continue to try. The Antichrist of Revelation will undertake the ultimate such attempt, but as J. Vernon McGee once said, the Jew has attended the funeral of every one of the nations that tried to exterminate him. And we'll see that's going to be the case here as well. So the king granted permission, issued the decree, and then in what I think is one of the more interesting and maybe most amazing parts of this whole story, verse number 15 the king and Haman had a drink together to celebrate. 
I think that's amazing. What a picture. What a picture of the total disregard of others that is demonstrated by these two. Uh, one person wrote, the completeness of the word painting in this verse is exquisite. The historian, by a simple stroke, has drawn a graphic picture of an oriental despot wallowing with his favorite in sensual enjoyments while his tyrannical cruelties were rending the hearts and homes of thousands of his subjects. And I would submit we don't have to go to the Persian Empire to see that. We don't have to go to antiquity to see that level of disregard by leaders for their own people. It has happened down through history. It happens today. It will continue to happen until that glorious day. Jesus, the King, sits on his throne, and we finally see a righteous leader. Well, so that's what happened. That's what happened. Haman was promoted. Mordecai refused to bow down to him, and so Haman sought to destroy him and all the Jews. The king granted that permission and issued the decree, and then they sat down and they had a drink together. So how can we apply that? Is there anything in there that we could apply to our lives and say, what can we learn from this? I think there are a couple things. Let me suggest just a couple things. One of them is, is the application that we're going to continue to repeat throughout our entire study of the book of Esther, because it's the theme of the book. And that is this. God is in control of weak kings, evil people, and even those paying absolutely no attention to him. God is in control. God puts people like Haman in power because they are part of his plan, and he's using them to accomplish his purposes. Mordecai was not rewarded in any way, at least not yet, for the, the, what he did for the king at the end of chapter 3, because God had plans later on, and he was going to use that event later on. Both Mordecai and Haman are reminders that we, are, that we might not understand what God is doing at first, but we will by and by. Uh, Paul said to the Romans in Romans chapter 9, the scripture says to, to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. I think it's fascinating how in this book, where the name of God is never mentioned, God's presence and oversight is never acknowledged, even for a second, and yet he was obviously in control. He was working in and through Mordecai, who seemed to never acknowledge him. He was working through Esther who also seemed to have no understanding of God. He was working through an idiotic king, Ahasuerus, whose every decision seemed to be more ridiculous than the one previous. And he was working through one of the most evil men who ever drew breath. Amen. Do you not find that encouraging? God, God is in control of weak kings, evil people, and even those paying no attention. And we ought, to take, we ought to take heart. We ought to be encouraged by those things because our large and in charge God, as Sandy likes to say, is not bound by kings. He binds them, moves them like pawns on a chessboard. Our God is not hindered by the evil plans of even the most powerful people on this earth. He uses them to accomplish his will and then squashes them like bugs, as he did with Pharaoh and as he will do with Haman, and we'll see it at the end. One of the funniest parts of the book, by the way, is what happens with Haman at the end. And our God is still working, always working, even when it seems there are none who know and stand up for him. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrongs seem awful so strong, God is the ruler, 
yet. So God is in control of weak kings and evil people and even those paying no attention to him. That's one thing we can learn. Here's another one, and you won't like this one. I doubt you'll like this one at all. All of us, in a way, are Haman. You like that one? I see some heads nodding, though. In a way, we are all Haman. How, how do we account for the evil, the level of evil that lurked in the heart of Haman? How do we account for that? How is that possible? It's awfully tempting to think of him as somebody completely different from us, somebody far removed from the norms of humanity, to think of him as some kind of an aberration. But the fact is, I think Haman is a reminder to us of what lurks within all our hearts. The Bible says that the heart of all mankind is broken. It's dark with sin. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Jeremiah said, who can know it? This was why there was a flood in the Old Testament. This was why God judged all the earth in the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 6 and verse number 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil. Continually. And so God poured out his judgment in a worldwide flood, saving only Noah and his family. And then afterwards, God said the condition of man's heart remained the same. Genesis chapter 8, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is still evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Over and over and over, the Bible makes it clear, something of what was in Haman is in all of us. What is man that he could be pure, and he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water? Job chapter 15. David said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 51. His son Solomon said, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs chapter 28. And then in Ecclesiastes, Solomon also said, Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. There is no end to the depths of depravity in the human heart. And so what we see in Haman, we see in all of us, at least to a degree. My friend, you will never understand, none of us can ever understand why Jesus came and what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary uh, for us until we come to grips with that fact. He came and died because we were broken and lost. He came and gave his life on the cross because our sins had separated us from God, and there was nothing we could do to fix our broken and lost and sinful estate. And so he fixed it by paying that debt with his own blood on the cross. My little sister used to sing a song. She used to sing a song that was called, Who Killed Jesus? There was a verse in that song I've never forgotten. It said, My sins demanded hell. On him the judgment fell. I am guilty. Plain to see. It was really me. Can you get your head around that? Can you get your heart around that? Can you see it? Can you come to the place where you can admit 
that your heart is black like Haman's? You might not have sunk to the same depths, and I certainly hope you have not sunk to the same depths of depravity that he has, but the seeds of it are there. We all have the same problem. You know you've violated God's commandments. You know that you have idols in your life that you worship more than God. You know that you're a sinner. Can you get to that point? You see, if you can get to that point, there's hope for your soul, and you can be saved. But if you cannot get there, you're going to find yourself in the same hell where Haman is dwelling right now, and where all those who have rejected Christ dwell. Well, so that's another uh, application. In a way, we are all Haman. Let me say one more, and then I'll be done. That one was kind of like for those who were lost among us. Here's one for those of us who name the name of Christ who are saved. In a way, we are all like Ahasuerus. We are all like Ahasuerus. So the king sat down to drink. Verse number 15. Think about that for a moment. Difficult for us to get our minds around the evil in the heart of Haman. I think it's also just as much of a struggle to understand the callousness of the king. The callousness of Ahasuerus. How do we account for such a disregard for others? How could anybody just stand by while thousands of people were murdered? How could anybody allow others to suffer and die without intervening? How could he just sit down and enjoy the pleasures of this life when eternity hung in the balance for so many? Do you see the application? The lesson ought to be clear. The lesson ought to be clear to all of our callous hearts. I can't improve on these thoughts, so let me just quote from Warren Wiersbe one more time. He said, Before we condemn wicked Haman, let's examine our own hearts. Billions of lost sinners in today's world are under a sentence of eternal death, and most Christians do very little about it. We can sit at our church banquets and Sunday dinners without even thinking about helping to get the message out that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We all want to enjoy the feast, but we don't want to share the message. We don't have to be hardened unbelievers like Haman or Ahasuerus to be apathetic and unconcerned about the plight of the world's billions of lost souls. What a picture this king was, and Haman was, of much of the church today, drinking and feasting while people are dying. Like Nero, who famously is said to have fiddled while Rome burned. When we who are saved read such examples in the Bible, I hope our hearts break the sentence of death that hangs over so many because, as the songwriter says, we are called to take his light to a world where wrong seems right. They must hear the words of life that only we, only we, only we can share. People need the Lord. All of us, in a way, are like a hash wearers. Well, I'm done. Even though the decree of annihilation was given, God's people were still safe because God was still there and working. That's the truth, not only of this chapter, but of the entire book of Esther. And in the next chapter, we're going to see how God is going to use the characters in this drama to accomplish that deliverance. Esther the queen will become Esther the heroine, so stay tuned. Father God, we're so thankful for the privilege we've had to look at your book and uh, this uh, interesting chapter in the book of Esther. And I pray that somehow... Something that has been said or or shared here today will speak to all of our hearts.
Help us, Father, to apply these things. Help us, Father, to examine our hearts. I, I do pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, they'd think about the reality that all of us are very much like Haman. The same need within him, the same brokenness, the same darkness of heart is uh, to an extent in all of us. And Father, I pray if there's anybody who's never trusted you as Savior in this place, that this day they would look into their heart, do, do some examination and see that there, are, uh, there is a need there and that they need a Savior and that they would trust you. And I pray for those of us who are Christians that we also would see that just as uh, Ahasuerus and Haman both were callous, have no disregard for those who were dying, I pray you'd break our hearts for the lost and that as we think about those around the world who are dying and going to hell without our intervention of any kind, forgive us, Lord. Revive us and help us to have a desire uh, to, to, to share the truth with everybody we know. And, Lord, if there's any other needs that might have been uncovered, any other things that the Holy Spirit has touched in the hearts of these, your people, as we sing and as we conclude our service, I pray, we'd all make whatever decisions we need to, and we'd all apply this, and we'd all be changed by it. And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.